Giridumarung. On behalf of uh, Jared and myself, I'd like to acknowledge country in my Wiradjuri language. So, Yiridumarung, Yuindu Yanada Heis, Baladu Wiradjuri Gilung, Arambajibu Brungli Bormir Gandhi Bala Williams, Indamaladu, Balga Balga Galangbu Balagirbangbu Balambangbu Wiradjuri, Nirumbangbu, Yindamaladu, Garnagul, Adelaide, Maine. So, I attempted to say, I'm I'm still learning. Um, Yiridumarung, so I'd like you all to say Yiridumarung. Perfect. So that's literally good day. So good day. Um, my name is Anita Heiss and I have Wiradjuri belonging from Arambi and Brungle Missions and they're both in central New South Wales. I'm a Williams. Uh, every day I have respect for my elders, my old people, my ancestors, those who have passed over and Wiradjuri country. But today, I pay my respects to traditionals of country here, the Ghana people in Adelaide, on behalf of Jared and I. And I always like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country as the first storytellers of the place. And because we're here talking about stories, I just like to acknowledge that stories have been told on this land through dance and song um, for tens of thousands of years. So, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anita. Also on uh, behalf of Anita and I, it's really, it's really difficult to speak about Anita's novel without acknowledging invasion uh, and also flood victims. So uh, our support goes to the flood victims in this country and also Ukrainians um, uh, enduring uh, invasion at present. And we also encourage you to look at ways that you can support um, people that are both dealing with, with the floods at the moment and also invasion, um, which are themes of this, this uh, wonderful book by my dear friend Anita Heiss. Um, Anita knows, needs little in, introduction, I, I think. Uh, the most prominent, one of the most prominent writers in this country, and certainly the most prominent and celebrated Aboriginal author in this country. Um, so it's a great pleasure for me to be speaking with Anita today. Um, a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, in re regards to COVID, please maintain social distance. Uh, we strong, strongly encourage that you wear masks. Um, and then after the session, uh, Anita will be signing books. So we do hope that you can come and join us, say hello to Anita, buy a book and have it signed. Um, I want to start, Anita, with the title of your novel, Bila Yara Dangarangarai. And um, maybe to, to help the, the audience to understand the, the title sure. and to give us a bit of a linguistics lesson. Linguistics lesson. Well, you all know that I'm still learning as well. And I will tell you, um, so it's Billa Yaradangalang Duray. Billa means river. Uh, Yaradang means dream. Galang is the plural, so many dreams. And Duray is the action of having the dream. So. Wiradjuri is a completely different grammar system. You have to, I mean, I feel like I didn't even learn English properly now when I went to school. So you have to forget everything you've learned in English because you have to start all over again. And the title um, on the cover, I was very excited because it was the first time that in Australian commercial publishing that no English was on the front cover. So on the back, it says River of Dreams. But when I was learning, so many people were ringing me, when I was writing the book, so many people were ringing saying, how do you say the, how do you say the title? I'm practicing. So I made a little video 
and I thought I was so hot. I did like one take wonder, made this video, put it on Twitter and Instagram, and there's thousands of views overnight. And people are ringing me and texting me with their little versions of, you know, this I've been practicing. And I was driving along um, Main Street at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane, Mianjin, where I live, and Annie Elaine Lomas, Bajaja, who's Uncle Stan Grant's sister, who's one of my language teachers, she said, Bub, you know, I saw that video, you know you said it wrong. And we're laughing now. I was horrified because I was embarrassed. Um, I felt like I had, was disrespectful. And then I spent like probably about five hours that day beating myself up and, you know, ringing family. And people were saying, ah, tomato, tomato. Because I was saying deray and it's deray. And I rang one of my, um, you, know, you know, one of my sisters down in, um, in Tumut. And I said, how do you say it? She said, well, I say... Deray, but maybe it's just your accent. And um, then I rang another friend, and I was, I was genuinely upset. I was quite distressed about getting it so wrong so publicly and then, and then having to somehow remedy it. And Helen said to me, Anita, you need to understand that you're learning what should have been your first language at the age of 50 and you're gonna make mistakes. And then I just thought this is, so the, for me there was a positive out of that negative because I've had so many conversations around that now. And it's not tomato or tomato, it is about saying, getting it absolutely right. So, um, so we're gonna do it together. Ready, so Billa. Billa. Yarodang. Yarodang. Galang. Galang. Duray. Duray. Billa, Yarodang, Galang, Duray, on three, ready? One, two, three. Billa, Yarodang, Galang, Duray. You're all fluent. Thank right. you. Awesome. If you get stuck, it's River of Dreams. Yeah. And uh, Anita, I know we, we had a conversation that day, actually. Did I uh, that Yeah, we were, we were having a discussion. I rang a, a lot of people. So. And, I, and I remember that you were, yeah, you were absolutely devastated that you'd pronounced uh, the, the word wrong. So we're going to talk about this a, l a little later, but in terms of that great responsibility, can you talk a little bit about that now? As, as an Aboriginal author, a Rudgery person, and that representation of your own culture? Sure. So I think nearly every single book I've written has been obviously written through the lens of a Wiradjuri woman. I'm urban, like I grew up in the city. We talked about this earlier today about, I used to joke that I was, um, what did I, a concrete quarry with Westfield Dreaming. Mm. Um, but everything I've done has always been um, having been aware of my responsibility as an author to represent, represent myself and my mob authentically and um, with respect. So nearly every single book that I've ever written, I think this is number 18, all of those books are written with an enormous amount of research. I get lots of drafts that are read by well, knowledge keepers, my elders, if it's young people, if the story's about young people, because at the end of the day, I remember having a conversation with a, my editor for Who Am I, The Diary of Mary Talents. Um, we had a really quick turnaround from literally two weeks I delivered the novel and it was at the printer two weeks later, which is almost unheard of. And I needed to check some things with, um, around stolen generations with someone who'd been removed. And I had to explain to him at the time that it doesn't matter if we sell 50,000 books. If I get it wrong, um, nobody cares who Scholastic are, but they know who I am. And I'm accountable for telling, because I'm telling the story for so many people who don't have a platform. And so with this book, I remember saying to my, my 
my agent, do not let me say I'm going to do another book because the anxiety around getting it right um, is, is quite stressful. And I remember talking to one of my language teachers and it wasn't even around the language, it was about representation of our people that's not necessarily recorded in full um, in Gundagai and Wagga and so forth in, in that period. And I said, I'm just worried about the community. And she said to me, Anita, you, you are the community too. So, but I know that most black writers feel the same. And when we talk about protocols and the principles of respect and communication and consent and attribution and all those protocols that you can find in Terry Jenke's um, uh, protocols that are published by the Australia Council, I know lots of non-Indigenous authors see them as challenging and see them as blockages to their creativity but I actually see them as really valuable foundations to creating the best work that we can possibly have. Photo op. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my left side's best. But um, I think, uh, yeah, so for me, I mean, I'm conscious of that all the time. And there is this dream about, oh, imagine being able to sit, sit and look out the window and write about flowers and trees and birds and every metaphor for sex. But most of us are trying to fill in the voids of what's missing in the way we've been represented or misrepresented or not represented at all. So we don't really have the time, I feel, I have the time to play, as it were. Mm. Not to, no, I'm not trying to downplay what other people do. I'm just saying there is a huge responsibility to fill in the gaps in the Australian literary landscape where we don't exist. Yeah. We'll come back to that question a bit more later about responsibility and, oh, I and also the, that didn't spend enough on that. Yeah, well, the, and the, but the degree, you know the degree of research okay. right, and right. some of the fun things that you did yes. while researching as yeah. well. Um, and I want to hear about your going to ro rodeos. You've been going to rodeos for yes. research, so we might book, yeah. talk about that later. Um, so your novel commences with the flood in Gundagai in 1852. What was the spark that ignited this work? And why did you choose to delve into this particular moment yep. of Wiradjuri history? Okay, good question. So I had written a novel about World War II called Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossom, set in Cowra. Has anybody heard of the Cowra Breakout? Yep. So and my mother was on a, living on a Rambi mission when that happened. And I, I had no ideas about another historical novel or that I even had the capacity to write another historical novel. And my beautiful publisher at Simon & Schuster said, we want you to write an epic a historical novel, I, I didn't even know what that was, actually. It's about 130,000 words, which is more than a PhD. Anyway, it's quite epic. And um, we knew that we would write a story about... I wanted to write a, a story about Aboriginal Wiradjuri women and settler women and how relationships can be formed on the land somewhere in history in, on Wiradjuri country. So that was May 2017. In June 2017, on the anniversary of the Great Flood of Gundagai, 165 years after the flood, there was finally this national recognition for Yadi and Jackie Jackie, who were two Wiradjuri heroes that saved 59 lives during that Great Flood. I wasn't in Gundagai, but most of my family from Brungle and Tumut and Wagga and Canberra were on the main street, Sheridan Street, for the unveiling of that statue. And so I was watching it all unfolding online and I thought, how is it that the entire country does not know about the Great Flood of Gundagai, which is thought to be the greatest natural disaster in the history of Australia, where a third of the town drowned over three days. So that's about 80 people 
in a small town all died because of these raging floodwaters. And two Aboriginal men, with uh, absolute brave, bravery and, and courage, went out on their canoes over these three days and one by one they would bring people in and save all these lives. And I thought... Um, yeah, the story will start there and hopefully, I had no idea where else it would go, but I thought I want this story told and I want to see it in classrooms and I want Australians to be talking about these statues and also then talking about the lack of statues that recognise all of our heroes while we have statues that talk about settlers discovering places well, you can't discover a place that already has people in it and that no conversation around the blackfellas that walked those people, those explorers across country and mountains and so forth to, to set up towns. So that's where it started. Mm, brilliant. So the, and the Billow, the river is a central point of, of Wiradjuri life. Can you explain it in the context of your novel and how it is a, is a central character within the story? Sure. So Wiradjuri people are known as, we're known as the people of the three rivers. So obviously the Murrumbidjabilla, the Murrumbidgee River, the Womble, uh, which is the Macquarie, and the Galari or the Kalari, which is the Lachlan River. So we are river people. Um, the river is a source of life, it's a source of sustenance. Within the novel you'll see also that um, the river is a place of cultural significance and activity. So without detail, because not everything we learn as First Nations peoples is for the public domain. So while I know where the birthing spots are along the river, um, I, you know that's not specified in the novel. But we learn that there, there are, you know, there are women's birthing spots along the Murrumbidgee River. So it's places. It's a place of cultural significance. The river is also um, a way of. I liken this to follow the rabbit-proof fence. You will have all known. Yeah. Um, you know, where the girls were told, they knew that if they followed the rabbit-proof fence, they would get home, right, to Moor River. And in the story, so the, the Murrumbidgee flows from Gundagai down to Wagga, um, there's a part of the story, there, there may be some spoilers, part of the story, it's a story of homecoming, heroism and homecoming, homecomings. And so they know that if they follow the river... Um, they will find their way home. So it is a place for geography, it's a place for transport and so forth. And we know that, it's, that the river is, a, well, this, in this story, it's a place where people make dreams, like Yinjimara and Wagadine, they fall in love and they make love and they create a family. Um, but we know from the beginning of the novel, it takes away dreams and there's some devastating moments in the novel where other dreams are, are shattered as well. So there's... For me, you're right, it is, it is essentially another character. Yeah. And so, so with Wagadine, so Wagadine's uh, removed from her family, uh, moves with the pastoral family, the Bradleys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what, what, I mean, how does the river kind of... How does it bring kind of uh, comfort to Wagadine, yeah. both, both sorrow and comfort, knowing yeah. that her family members yeah. are just up the river? Yeah. So she know well, they're living in a, a, a time where there's a Masters and Servants Act. So it wasn't specifically for Aboriginal people, but I had a legal, beautiful legal team who for, did pro bono work for me for, and they found, did all this research for me and said it was more 
more than likely that Wiradjuri people would have lived in fear of that act. So even that, so, which meant that also there was no freedom for movement because they were, you know, they were servants. So even though she knew she was still on Wiradjuri country, the, her old women had told her that whenever she dances, they will fill the dance upriver. She really didn't know how far it was. In today's terms, I think it's it's not far at all. But in those days, there was no sense of the distance. And so um, the river at the time, so she found comfort because the family that she goes to live with, which is Yindi's family, and the local mob, they're all living by the river, hmm. right? They're all living by the river. And so her family also lived by the river and would move high in times of flood. So that sense of community and that sense of knowing these people live just like my people because they were her people, you know. So I don't know if that answered that question, did yep. it? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> I've uh, just um, come from a week of flooding up in Brisbane and had to get evacuated, so I'm ta I've got notes. I'm trying to be not have brain fog. Yeah. Well, good. I've just... Uh... Okay, the, uh, so Biro Yaradangarai is, is significant for your incorporation of Wiradjuri language. How did, how did you approach um, including the language components yeah. uh, and always, have you always been a strong Wiradjuri sp uh, speaker? Okay. okay, we'll start with the third one. I'm yep. not a strong speaker. I'm on my L's, I'm learning. Um, uh, it's interesting because when I had the when we had the idea for the book, and I wrote a synopsis, I hadn't started learning my language. I didn't know it was going to have language in there, so I had this idea. I'm going to write the Great Flood. I didn't know it was going to be set in Wagga, so we had the idea uh, about the flood in June of 2017. In January 2018, I started learning my language at Charles Sturt University in Wagga. Uncle Stan Grant Senior, it was the, and his brother, um, the late Uncle Sess, and doctor, the late Dr. John Rudder had done this enormous amount of research. We are probably one of the luckiest nations in the country. We have so many resources. I think we're the, we're the only language group that has um, a university backed um, course, so it's a grad certificate that goes for a couple of years and includes nation building and culture and heritage. And so it wasn't until I started doing this course and I was learning and every day I was texting my publisher saying, oh, I want to do this, can I put language in? And all at the time Bert said to me was, you put in as much as you want, but when you're writing it, try and make it so we, we don't want people having to go to the glossary. There is a glossary, but so that they could understand the language within the text. So, for instance, and I don't know whether I've done it well, but I've, I had an attempt. So, for instance, there's a scene where the little boy taps um, Wagadon on the head with a pair of clapsticks and she, she rouses on him and he leans in and he kisses her on the cheek and says, Norobul Nindu. And then she says, I love you too. So the idea is that you can sort of understand what's being said. So I tried to do that as much as I can. Um, it's interesting because I've always said I could never write, I'll never write the great Australian novel and I'll never win any great literary award because I don't have the vocab. I have a very small vocab, very minimal vocab. Uh, I acknowledge that. It took me a long time to just to accept that. But what I realised after I wrote this book was I didn't have the vocab I really needed to write the great Australian novel was Wiradjuri language. Mm. 
So I feel like I had all this expectation because we're all socialised and educated through non-Indigenous systems and um, we grow up learning, you know, English that we think that is that's, that the great Australian novel will be read, read, written in English. Well, in, in actual fact, what I've, when I've realised since I wrote this book, um, and it's funny, you write books and then you don't realise a whole lot of things till someone else points something out to you, but what I've realised is what I hope people take away in terms of the language is that they understand that everywhere you walk in Australia, you're walking on land that has a first language and it's not English. And I think, for me, if that's the one realisation people take away, they go, oh, my God, every, we are, we've all been raised to speak a second language in this country. And when you go, when I go to do role modelling in the territory with those kids, you know, with the ILF or wherever, those kids are speaking three and four languages. And they're not even counting English in that. Yeah. They say, oh, I speak this language, this language, and they go, I speak four languages, and they say it in English. So, in fact, they speak five languages. Put us all to shame. Yeah. So, Anita, you went to courses. You were spending time with yep. Uncle Stan so, Grant. So, it's a, it's a degree, yep. a certificate. So, you it's a residential. You're in a classroom with Uncle Stan and um, his protégés. So, Lloyd Dolan, Letitia Harris, Yari Lambshead. There's people who have finished the course, can come back and sit in the room. They just come back. People just turn, come back. Elders and people who are local. I live the furthest away. Everybody lives in, you know, on country mainly. Um, and they come and support us. And I think I had maybe 14 in my cohort. They're not all Wiradjuri people. There were three or four non-Indigenous teachers who live in um, Wagga and Dubbo or wherever. And they just want to be better teachers for their for all their kids, not just Koori kids. They come in there, they take leave without pay and they because they want to be better educators. And um, and so, so I went down there learning that and I had loads of resources. We have to do assignments and assessments and my, my last assessment, I chose something I could have done much easier. Like people did things with their projects over in two weeks. I chose something that's taken two years and that was to do um, a growing up Wiradjuri anthology with the elders to give them a platform to tell their stories, but for a school audience, because what, because what part of the course was about was about nation building, and building our nation also means always working from a position of excellence uh, in, a, in a country where we're often spoken of as coming from, you know, deficit positions. And um, so that book's coming out in July. I'm very excited through Magabala. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> so did the learning of language expand your storytelling craft? So did, did it help you to connect in a different way with your ancestors and your, yep. and your country and, and, and your writing? Uh, absolutely. I think one of the things... I, so the first day I went to class, I had every single book possible. Uncle Stan had given me this whole, this whole kit you can get. It's got CDs and glossaries and grammar books and dictionary and picture books and a whole lot of things. And I was sitting in my hotel thinking, I am never going to be able to do this. It, I, I'm just not going to get it because it's... Com completely different to anything we've all learned. And you have to think in Wiradjuri. And I went to class the next day, and you're in the room with other people who appear to be doing it with much greater ease, yeah? 
And one of my teachers, Letitia, said, you know, you will, the ancestors will give you the knowledge when they think you're ready for it, which is kind of just like, okay, great. So it's a bit of a cop-out now. I'm like, oh, well, I can't do that because... But once I actually just trusted that, I trusted myself more, and then things started to fall into place. And learning, I, th I think, I know from the, how my writing, I think, it's matured in this novel, and learning language and having to do that and thinking in a Wiradjuri mindset to actually be able to write language allowed me to see what the landscape looked like through Yindamara's eyes and what life on the river was like through Wagadine's eyes and her father's eyes and so forth. Because otherwise, I think not learning to get into that mindset, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So I, I'd like to think that this book is somewhat more mature in its writing than my previous novels have been. Yeah, I mean, I mean I've read many of your works and I think it's, uh, yeah, it's just inc it feels incredibly fluid and natural and... Um, you know, I was just I was so surprised because, I, I mean, we talked earlier about you, you know, joking around about being Westfield Curry, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah, just to kind of see, I don't know, the depth that that is involved in this work, yeah. and you know, a whole lot of kind of yeah, social commentary, yeah. not only about the past but speaks yeah. into into present moments as well. Yeah, and also, well, just speaking in the present moment, I feel, I feel now that. We talk about, you know, sovereignty never ceded and we need to, you know, I feel like when I speak language that that, that is an act of sovereignty. That is something that can't be taken away. So you, our children were taken away, our grandparents were in a home, my grandparents were, my grandmother was in Cootamundra Aboriginal Girls' Home and the Home of the Good Shepherd. You know, my family's been raised on government-run missions and church-run church missions and so forth. Um, language was outlawed. And I think one of the things for me, sitting in the space, learning language, was quite confronting because I sat in a space as, as a completely privileged person in my world. I'm sitting there learning the language in an academic institution um, with people my mother's age who grew up not being able to, forcibly not being able to speak language. And... You know, that made me very... There were moments where, like, people would just cry because it's a reality. Like, he's, I'm sitting in a space thinking about history um, as a very, in my world, very privileged person. In a non-Indigenous context, I might just look like everybody else. Yeah. Anita, would you be able to please read for us? Sure. Thank you. So I wanted to read just a little bit. One of the characters is uh, Louisa. Louisa is a, is a Quaker... And I, I wanted to show how it's possible, and it is possible, we do it every day. Um, we have relationships and friendships across geography and across culture, because as humans we can find connection in all the basic human emotions of fear and happiness and love and joy. Um, and I'm always keen to look at what makes us the same before we challenge ourselves with what makes us different. You know, and that happens a lot in society. So Louisa is a Quaker. Who so can I can I ask about Louisa yep. just before yep, sure. before you read? Like, mm -hmm. so why did why did you actually give her such a strong 
ideological position. Oh, well, it's interesting because I, I knew there would be, there'd, there'd have to be this friendship because I wanted to show what life was like for, non, for settler women on the country. And I was writing this character and then I was talking about it to someone at dinner one night and they said, oh, you should make her a Quaker. And I went home and I Googled and I learned the Quakers came to Australia in 1832 and their two main concerns for their missions were to were to fight for equality for the for convicts and for the aborigines and i thought she's perfect and my understanding of quaker principles were they believed in caring for the earth for community peace simplicity um, and equality so there were very similar principles to wiradjuri principles and values so I thought this is perfect because now she has a reason to befriend Wagadine and um, but the you know we see this happen today where lots of people have great um, intent and goodwill uh, we want to help you but we're going to tell you how you're going to be helped and we're going to control the process so um, Louisa and, and Wagadine are friends but they are completely different worlds away and I just wanted to share this because Louisa takes Wagadine with her when they, when the fan, when her and James Bradley move from Gundagai to Wagga. Now, a real sense of equality would have been Louisa would have said to Wagadine, "You can, you need to stay here with your family," but she doesn't. She takes Wagadine with her, and Wagadine spirals into depression because she misses her Miagan, her family, her kin, her relations, and she's out on the veranda sweeping, and. Um, they end up having this exchange, which I hope answers some of the questions around, you know, the differences between principles. She wonders how the two of them, two of them can ever really be friends when Louisa doesn't understand the sense of loss she feels being away from her clan. When she doesn't see that her grief is tied to her disconnection from her family, from not being able to dance at ceremony, from not being able to walk on the land where she was birthed and raised... How can she explain to Louisa, whose family chose to live on other people's land, that she feels her sense of identity has been robbed, that everything that makes her Wagadine, the dancer, has been taken from her? How can this white woman ever understand her or be able to help her? She pities Louisa at that moment, realising that her own life is rich in ways that cannot be measured by heads of cattle or pennies or acres of land. Wagadine feels her body heating, the emotion rising within. She closes her eyes and starts moving her feet slowly to the sound of nothing but the breeze in the trees, as if every grey gum is singing to her. She breathes in the scent of the eucalyptus and imagines being with the women back home, dancing around the ceremonial fire, her feet following the steps of those who have danced the country for tens of thousands of years before her. She knows the ancient ones are with her again. Wagadine, Louisa says, breaking her trance. What are you doing? She opens her eyes, realising that this is the first time she has danced for a long time and that she's never danced in front of a white person before. She knows that James Bradley would be angry if he found out she was dancing instead of sweeping, but she can't stop. She doesn't want to stop. I miss dancing with the women, she replies, her feet still moving, wishing she was on her sacred ground back home. My name, she continues, patting her chest with purpose. My name means dancer. I told you that the first time we met. Don't you remember? She wonders if Louisa has ever listened to her, if her claims of wanting to help Aborigines are true, if, when Louisa refers to her as a friend, she really means it. 
It is who I am, Louisa. I can't forget who I am. I don't want to forget. I won't forget. She's conscious of her louder than acceptable voice, of her tone with the woman who is still her boss. And she corrects herself immediately. I must dance, Louisa, she says softly. It is in me, part of me. It is my spirit, my life. But what about your new life here? Isn't this better life? Louisa looks around the property at the large station and beautiful home as if these things make up for a lack of family contact and of love. Don't you like your room? This is not me, Wagadine stresses, her bottom lips trembling. A room cannot replace my family or their love. This property is you. Wagadine realises this is the first time she and Louisa have been completely honest with each other. Maybe they are almost equals in friendship, if nothing else. As quick as she catches a glimpse of equality, she sees it disappear when Louisa's tone changes to one of authority. You mightn't see it, Wagadine, but you have changed. I have seen you change. You are not the same person you were back in Gundagai. Wagadine feels challenged. I have not changed. She is adamant, remembering her father's final words, that people don't change but become a different form of their original self. I'm not different. I'm the same Wiradjuri Yinna I've always been. She boldly uses her language and places her hand firmly on her chest, reclaiming an identity the Bradleys have tried to take from her since she was forced to work for them. A new town and a new home, even a new window does not make a new me. This is just silly. I am Wagadina, will always be me. A new place in things won't change that. Louisa looks hurt, disappointed. Neither of the women know where to turn, as if looking at each other would be even more unsettling. But while Wagadine wants Louisa to understand what she's trying to explain, the last thing she wants to do is hurt her feelings. She is, after all, the only person she has to lean on here in Wagga Wagga. She's beginning to realise that Louisa needs her too, not just to help around the house, but as emotional support, since she has no other female companionship. In the uncomfortable silence, Wagadine bends over and picks up the broom. She looks at it for a moment, considers its long handle and smiles, having found a way to explain what she's been trying to express to Louisa. She will try one more time. Touch this, she says to Louisa, who looks perplexed. Go on, touch it, please. Louisa runs her hand along the upper length of the broom handle. What is it made of? Louisa frowns. Wood, of course. Yes, Wagadine agrees. And where does wood come from? Well... She looks at Wagadine suspiciously. It comes from trees. Wagadine can hear the frustration in Louisa's voice at having to answer such basic questions. So the handle is made of wood and wood comes from trees. And so you could say that the handle is a tree in a different form. Louisa considers the words, looks at the broom handle, touches it again. She looks back at Wagadine. The tree hasn't really changed, Louisa. It's just in a different form now. Louisa nods. I am the tree, Louisa. I am still the same, just a bit different here because of how I live. But that hasn't changed who I am inside, who I am as a person. I'm still the Wagadine I was the day you met me and for all the years before you met me. And I will be me for all the days ahead, just as her father had said she would be.
So I just, I want to ask a little bit more about Wagadine and also Louisa and that relationship. I found it really, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, with uh, Louisa, I always, there was this strong tension throughout the book because I always felt like Louisa was going to remove one of the Radri children. Right. Or she was going to steal Wagadine's daughter or son. That's the sense that I always got. So this non-Aboriginal woman, very strong ideological position, but had the... Um, desperately wanted a child. Desperately That's wanted really a child. That's really interesting because that never, that storyline never even crossed my path. I, like, I didn't even think about that that was, I didn't even think that Louisa was capable of doing that. This is the interesting thing. You have no control over how people read your work. So you put something out there and people will say that. And, and actually that, it could have happened. <clears throat> It could easily have happened because Louisa wanted to go down and talk to the kids and read books and so forth, and she could easily have... And they had power. Like, they, they had the power to do that. Wagadine has no power throughout this. She's under, no. she's under the Master Servants Act. So, with, um, in terms of, like, looking at Aboriginal domestics, um, yeah, yeah what, what, what type of research did you do to kind of develop that, that very you know, the, 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 the very rich life of, of yeah. uh, uh, Wagadon. Yeah, well, I had to... Obviously, it's historical fiction, so there are things that you have to imagine as an author. My own grandmother was was in uh, was a domestic, and she was in, as I mentioned, Cootamundra Girls' Home at a much later date. But I did have a lot... I did... I have to shout out to the Wagga Wagga Library and the Gundagai Library, because the librarians there... Everybody thinks the knowledge in libraries is on the shelves. A lot of the knowledge is behind the, the desks, and, you know, the, the staff were extraordinary. You know, I just rang up and I said, I need this, this and this, and I got there, they had all these you know, historical works available to me. So I relied on um, some published work from the time. I relied on... There was a lot of newspaper articles from... Particularly around the flood, which was great that I could use that documentation as well. Um, but the domestic servant stuff, I, I used what I had read, I guess, when I wrote Who Am I, The Diary Mary Talents. So I read the Bringing Them Home report which you know, has testimony from 666 different individuals and organisations and organisations that were involved with removing children. Um, and so I had to imagine some of that. And I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, I remember when we were talking about, with, I was talking to the publisher before we had a story about... That this, about the story that we would, I would write about a Wiradjuri woman, and I was adamant straight up that I didn't want to write a story about a woman who was sexually abused. Um, and people have asked me why... I mean, it's alluded to, not for Wagadine, but other women in the story, because I feel that Wagadine had so much going on in her, in her life that it wasn't... It, it, I, you know, I just I think well, you, you allude to it through other characters. I, I allude to other characters, and also <clears throat> there's David lurking around. There's yep. the threat of some kind of physical assault there with him, and the only thing that stops him doing that is the respect that he had for his mother. Mm. So, um, yeah. So with with the Bradleys, so they're a they're a partial family. Yep. Um, two brothers, parents have died during the during the flood. Yep. Um, the Bradleys further dis disconnect from each other the more they acquire wealth and status um, through the plunder of the land. Uh, 
was this a deliberate statement to amp amplify the principles of Wiradjuri people? Uh, it's maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know, because all the, the people ask you questions and you go, oh, well, I don't know if I intended to do that. What I intended to do was to show Wiradjuri values if they stood out because of the bad behaviour, the different behaviour of, you know, of the Bradleys and even Louisa Spencer. Louisa doesn't talk about her family, which is completely bizarre to Wagadine, who just talks about... She rattles off all the cousins that she misses and Louisa says, wow, that's a lot of family. She goes, oh, that's nothing. You know, Louisa, and so it's, it, which is how it is in real life today. Like, my non-Indigenous friends will talk about, you know, a close-knit family and they'll talk about cousin on second cousins, where we don't have that second cousin. We just, you either know you're part of kin or you're not. And um, I guess the principles, Wiradjuri principles, were of Wenangalana, like caring for each other and, and caring for country, um, which means you don't have cattle running all over it and you don't do the things and that they did to the landscape and to the emus, for instance, which we see in the story. And healing country means respecting country and, t and giving back as much as you take. And I think that's what I wanted to show as well, um, that in Wiradjuri culture, all the things that Yinjimata does with his boys when they go out and they learn how to cut a coolerman and they learn about different aspects of, um, you know, not stealing the eggs and so forth, I did that. I went out and I did that with my mob down there and I wanted to show that respect for animals and for animal life and for, for the land and so forth, which was in stark contrast to David uh, James Bradley, who was going to shoot or take care of all the noisy mm, cockatoos. Cockatoos. Well, having I need to tell you about the cockatoos. So the cockatoo is on the cover, and so we have a number of words for cockatoo. And some of you will have known or known of my beautiful, our beautiful late sister, Kerry Reed Gilbert, who was a Wiradjuri poet and activist and the daughter of the late Kevin Gilbert, who was the first Aboriginal playwright in Australia. And her totem was a white cockatoo. And um, so the white cockatoo is the totem for uh, Wagadine's mum. And... Um, I, when I was in Wagga learning my language, like, I mean, I was born in Sydney. I grew up near La Perouse and Maroubra Beach, and now I live in Brisbane, and I'm down, on the, I'm down at dusk in Wagga, and the cockatoos just make this, yeah, racket. I don't know what the word is. There's probably some lovely poetic word for it, but make a lot of noise. And when I videoed all these cockatoos at dusk, and I remember writing an article for the Qantas magazine, and I said, you know, something, whatever word I use, I can't remember, small vocab, remember. And the editor said, oh, I think you're over-dramatising. I said, well, I'm going to send you the video. And so, um, what, so because it was different to my ears. And so Wagadine knows when she sees the cockatoos that her mother's spirit is there with her. But James Bradley's like, you know, because Louise is all my poor, dainty you know, British ears, and, Dave, and James is like, well, I'll take care of those. Mm. And so I think that's the difference. And also, you know, Aboriginal people have totems because it makes sure that an our animals will never become extinct because everybody's responsible for looking after an animal. And I think that's also a very different way of looking at um, principles and country. You know, we, we see in the novel that, uh, which I read in some historical work, where... Um, they, one emu had, I think, coughed up or something, some gold, and therefore they culled all these emus and cut them up looking for gold 
you know, the go and, and they found none and they thought nothing of it. Mm. It's just distressing. And that happened. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so just, just obviously this week we've got the floods in yeah. um, Queensland, New South Wales. A couple of years ago we, we had all the fires. Um, so I was only speaking to people here from Kangaroo Island earlier and people talking about, you know, the devastation through Kangaroo Island. Uh, is a novelist statement on climate change and Aboriginal land management mm. and, and a need to, to move back to Aboriginal land yeah. management? Um, it's a really good question. And again, I didn't write it for that purpose. Um, it's like when I did Barbed Wire and Cherry Blossoms, the first, in, which was about the Carib Breakout and about the Prisoner of War camp and how uh, back in 19, what, 30, 1940, August 5, 1944, um, and the breakout, and how we treated, rightly so, to the letter of the law under the Geneva Convention, um, treated POWs, um, you know, with respect. Actually, POWs had better treatment than the Aboriginal people on a Rambi mission, right? Um, but the first interview I did asked me if this was a statement about, because at the time that book came out, um, there was more conversation in the media about asylum seekers and what was happening in Nauru and how we were not doing what we were supposed to be doing under the United Nations Convention, right? And so um, uh, I did, so somebody, so I didn't write that novel for that purpose. So this novel, I, what I realised at the end of it, and when you, when you have time to think, is it wasn't until the tragic bushfires of 2020, that we really saw in the media a conversation around cultural burns and around uh, our fire keepers and, and, and knowledge keepers having, getting a voice, voices being heard in the, in, in the national media around that. And my cousin, Dean Freeman, he runs uh, cultural burning workshops down in the ACT and down in um, New South Wales. And he talks about those burns, not only teaching people how bushfires can be prevented by doing these cultural burns, but it's actually a space that brings community together and knowledge is passed on together. So I'm hoping, I mean, the Mud Army went out today in Brisbane to help clean up those houses that have been just devastated. I, I walked down my street yesterday, and if we weren't seeing what we're seeing in the Ukraine right now, I would use the language that it looks like a war zone in Brisbane. The streets are just littered with everybody's lives of, you know, houses being gutted. And um, I hope that maybe what... The, it, there will be a time in the near future where a conversation is around listening to um, Indigenous peoples who managed this land for tens of thousands of years, for millennia. But I don't know. Is there too much damage done to repair that now? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there are, without, I don't want to take up too much time, but there are some wonderful work, like the work of your cousin, as you were saying and Victor Stefferson particularly yep. and uh, you know I think we're very blessed that Victor has been working with Ghana yep. people here to do cultural burns mm. my family Nukana uh, Narunga people and also Narendri so that's really yep. exciting yep. that we are you know we're, we're reviving a lot of those land yep. management 
practices. They needs that, but it needs to be a national strategies implemented, and yeah. it's the, it needs to be national strategies implemented that are developed and driven by First Nations peoples. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's not my area, but. <clears throat> So you were recently long-listed uh, for the Stellar Award. Yeah. Congratulations, Thank Anita. You. That was awesome. It's amazing. So, yeah, Thank can you, you. Tell, tell us how you feel about this and also, uh, I guess, how it, um, you know, provides you some, some encouragement leading into yeah. your next work. What's interesting, there's a couple of things there. I always joke, I'm always the bridesmaid, never the bride, in every sense of the word. Um, always hopeful, more hopeful for a husband than a literary award, but um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Putting it out there. Um, so I don't write for, as a, like the night after the literary awards, I'm so glad I went to Melbourne, like I wasn't going to go because of the floods, I felt, I was scared, I wanted to be in Brisbane to see what happened, although I had to evacuate my building, so I went, I was so glad I went, um, because it it was an incredible space to be in. There's 12 books long listed, only two novels, which is interesting. I think the prize used to be just fiction and then it was fiction and non-fiction. This year there's four books of poetry, which is really good for the industry. Maybe it will encourage publishers to actually start poetry lists again. So I'm on the board of the University of Queensland Press, not published by them, but I'm on their board. And UQP, I think UQP had three books in the list this year, maybe four. And so really, with Cordite, they're the ones that are doing poetry. So that's exciting. And there was a graphic novel, there was short stories and non-fiction. So for me, it's interesting though, because you could see on the screen, I had a very different cover. Because I'm a commercial writer, um, and, you know, I hate this hierarchy, I hate this, I hate the, the, the categorisation, you know, it's all literature, but in the literary world, I'm not a literary writer. And so it's funny because my friend kept saying, oh, your cover looks really different. I go, well, it's a commercial novel. So it, it was a thrill for me to, to be short, long-listed, short-listed, <laughs> manifesting, no, <laughs> long-listed in a literary award because I don't, my books don't normally turn, turn up in literary awards. Um, and we all like the stickers. You get a little, oh, no, you don't get a sticker for the long list, but I got stickers for other things. But, um, but I, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, it's my 18th book, so at some point, you, I, you do say to yourself, what do you have to do in the Australian literary scene to be recognised? I mean, I'm writing in my first language at the age of 50, I'm writing about stuff, but I don't write for awards. I, you know who I write for? I write for readers. You know, I sit at tables where people are literary writers and they sell 800 copies and I go, that's a lot of time to take out of your life. I don't have that time. You know, I want, we've got so many gaps to fill as First Nations authors in every genre that we don't have time to, I mean, I want book clubs to be talking about, we're edgy heroes, I want book clubs to be talking about how our people knew that that place was going to flood. So it's documented that Wiradjuri people told the locals, do not build here. It has flooded before, it will flood again. And that the town was set up in 1838, it flooded again in 1844, um, and it flooded after 1852, um, and then the town had to be, you know, resettled up in higher land. And so I want people to say, it's time to start listening to First Nations peoples about what they know. 
and stop expecting us to not have the knowledge because we have a lot of knowledge. Not me in particular, <laughs> but there are people. And I think I want people in book clubs and in classrooms to be looking at our lives and our stories through our lenses. So what are these photos on Instagram of you with like cowgirl boots and oh. hats I'm a method writer. Heading off to rodeos. Yes. What's that all about, oh, Anita? Really quickly, I'm a method writer. So part of researching for this novel was I got in a canoe and paddled down, um, down the Murrumbidjibilla from Gundagai, about 20, oh, I think it was about 20 k's. Took a long time. Actually, I could have run a marathon. I ran the New York Marathon in the same amount of time. We'd paddle down the river. And we were going with the current. Go figure. Um, and I fell in. But the idea was, and I'm, I'm very competitive, so I, was, I, was, I wasn't happy that I was the first one to fall in the water. Um, but I wanted to understand, and I'll get the radio thing, I wanted to understand what it must have been like. Now, I went out in November, blue sky, 20 people around us. I had on a... a Life jacket, is that what it's called? Life jacket? Completely safe. I was not... It would have been highly unlikely that I would have drowned. But I fell in and I, and I was scared. So you can only imagine. I thought what, it, what I got out of doing that as a method writer was really understood, knowledge again, how those two men, Yari and Jackie Jackie, how they knew that river, how they must have known how that river worked in f raging floodwaters, dark the whole time pretty much because it's raining and flooding the whole time for three days, how they must have known that river to be able to save those people when on one-man canoes, one-person canoes, taking people one at a time back to shore. So as a method writer, oh, I've got so many fun stories. Mm -hmm. um, going to a sex museum in New York for Manhattan Dreaming, that's another story, another panel. But um, I'm doing a book called Red Dust Dreaming about a, a girl, that, a woman, who runs a, a First Nations gallery in Brisbane and one of her friends wants to go to ro a rodeo for her, her birthday because she's always wanted to pick up a, what are they called, cowboy? Anyway, so the character, the main character, she's like, couldn't think of anything worse, but it's all in, one in all in, so she goes. And so I had to go and get jeans with bling on them and buy a hat and have all different types of boots and check shirts. And it was quite stressful. I'm sitting in the car going, oh, I'm going to stand out. I look like a city slicker who's trying to look like someone at a cowboy at a, at a rodeo. But it was really interesting because I want to have this balance about trying to understand particularly Aboriginal people who are on that circuit when bull riding, the bulls clearly don't like it, right? And I'm like, how, I have, so I have to have this balance between the one character who's a vegan and trying to manage a storyline um, without judgment. And so I interviewed some people, people I work with, you know, Murrays who grew up, you know, on, on stations and their family are stock, stockmen and we had some of the best stockmen you know, Yindi's a stockman. So um, that was lots of fun. Went to the, the Professional Bull Riders Association up in Rockhampton. Fascinating. And, um, and went to the Warwick Rodeo. And then my character was going to have the cowboy come to the Gold Coast and, you know, first time up a high rise. And as it turned out, the weekend I'm on the Gold Coast, there's a concert called Groundwater, which is this fantastic country music free festival. So I'm there in my denim, and I'm old, 53 years old, in my denim cut-off shorts, and my hat, and my top, and my boots, and feeling real country, and listening to Tammy Wynette, and 
Kenny Rogers and it has, well, I run and yeah, it's that's the fun. I mean, there's stuff in there about there's stuff in there obviously about country because at those events nobody not even acknowledged country. I went to these caves outside of Rockhampton, and they talk about how I think it was John Oxley discovered the caves in 18 something or other. I'm like, you're kidding me? You think for the tens of thousands of years the Durrambul people were there, they didn't see these caves? So, I, so I've got that. And so she has the conversation with the cowboy and he's just like, oh, why do you have to be so political? And she's like, it's, this isn't political. Anyway, so um, not sure whether that relationship's going to work or not. <laughs> I mean, she's going to pack up her Pradas and drive off into the red dust sunset. <laughs> I'm not sure yet. What do you think? Yes? No? I think it's a hit. Love knows no boundaries. Yeah. Real love knows no boundaries. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over to the audience for some questions. We've just got a, about a few minutes remaining. Might, might just need to grab a mic. Oh, oh you've got to go to the mic, right. Thank you for writing this book, Anita. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. Uh, my, I and my mother's family owe a great debt to Yari because he rescued Henry Hargraves, my great-great-great-grandfather. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I learned about this in the, in the 1980s and I thought not only was he a hero but he was so generous to do this, to save all these whitefellas who took the land and didn't treat anybody, you know, we, we haven't been very grateful at all. Um, so did that, that sense of pain, does that, did you feel that and how did you deal with that? I, I, don't, I don't want to say bitterness. No, I'm, I, I think for me, I, I didn't write it from a position of bitterness, I wrote it from a position of pride. And really, and thank you, thank you for letting me know that you're here. Um, and, I wrote, and when I went to Gundagai many times, because there are descendants, other descendants there, who um, came to the launch and stood up and spoke and said, I'm only here because Yari saved my great-grandfather. And there is an enormous amount of gratitude in that town. And that's another thing I wanted to do. I actually wanted to put Gundagai on the map for something other than the dog on the tucker box, which is all good, but, you know, I think... That's fine, and there's you know a Yari and Jackie Jackie um, statue steering committee with about 12 people on, including Arnie Sony Piper and Peter Smith. And in 2019, both men were um, what's awarded posthumous heroism awards, which was wonderful. And so I think you know in their lifetimes they were not, um, and that this is the sad part, they were not. Uh, properly acknowledged, they were given breastplates, but they still weren't, they were still treated like the outcasts that blackfellas were at the time and moved off country and so forth. So, um, you know, I, I think it's impossible to make, there's a famous saying, I forget what it is, but it's impossible to make change when you're full of bitterness. And I want people to learn. And so I wrote this from a position of, of pride and hope that it will bring communities together and that people will come to understand that um, our people were acting in the spirit of reconciliation before it was reconciliation. We're still carrying the load for reconciliation. And we were doing things. Our, our people went to war before they were citizens in this country. You know, and we've so fought for a land and a country that treated them essentially like shit. 
Oh, we didn't have profanities either, so I'll see that. We didn't like that. Sorry, so thank you. Thank you so much, Anita. A real pleasure um, to spend the afternoon with you. And uh, I'm hoping that people will come over and uh, see Anita and also s sit down, sign a book thank and you. say hello. So thanks so much, Anita. Thank you. And thank you, Jared. And thank you all for coming. Thank you.